зухвалим і жорстоким стає російський терор, тим очевидніше для світу, що допомога Україні із захистом неба – це одне з найвагоміших гуманітарних завдань для Європи нашого часу. Вірю, що вирішимо це завдання, і я вдячний тим нашим партнерам, які вже вирішили посилити саме таку підтримку нашої державі. Підтримку для ефективного захисту у повітрі. Ukraine strikes the only bridge linking the annexed Crimean Peninsula to Russia, scoring a key strategic and symbolic victory after months of victories on the battlefields in the south and in the east. And Russia responds with a barrage of rocket, drone, and artillery attacks against scores of Ukrainian cities across the country, targeting civilians and drawing widespread international condemnation, as well as calls for the West to provide Kyiv with advanced air defense systems. And just like that, the war in Ukraine has escalated. So where does it go from here? Well, stick around, because we've got two great guests to unpack it all and make us all a lot smarter. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Good to be back, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Good to have you. And also joining us from historic downtown Washington, D.C., is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Welcome back to The Vertical, Max. Great to be with you, Brian. Thanks. Great to have you. So to get us started, I just wanted to read from an op-ed uh, that was published this week in the New York Times by the Ukrainian journalist Margot uh, Gontar after the Russian attacks on civilian targets. Uh, Margot writes, while it's clear that Vladimir Putin wanted to threaten Ukrainians and send a message of power with the bombings of Kyiv, Lviv, Kharkiv, and Dnipro at the cost of at least 19 lives, the attack in fact shows just one thing, how weak Mr. Putin is. Among Ukrainians, there's an almost palpable feeling that Russia is losing the war. Mr. Putin might know it too. You can see it in his address after the Crimean Bridge explosion on Saturday. No more loud assertive tones, just a tired old man. His lack of enthusiasm is understandable because what was hit in the Kerch Strait was not just a bridge. It was the very thing that connects Russia and annexed Crimea, the link Russia is trying so hard to hone. The bridge, set, the bridge said to be protected in every possible way was a symbol of Russian power, and yet it was hit. That was, of course, written earlier in the week when the death toll was a little bit lower. Russia has now struck a, a, an estimated 40 cities across Ukraine um, and continues to hit them today on Thursday as we're recording. David, what are your top line reactions to the Ukrainian strike on the Kerch Bridge, the Russian strikes against Ukrainian cities, which are ongoing, which all, of course, comes after more than a month of Ukrainian victories in Kharkiv, Donetsk, and in Kherson. Well, Brian, my first reaction is I wish I, I had written that op-ed because I think it's spot on. And uh, But beyond that, I would say <clears throat> that 
the strike on the Kerch Bridge is definitely a, another step in Ukraine's advance in regaining control over its territory that Russia has occupied in, in many cases since 2014. And in contrast to the Russian strikes, which seem deliberately targeted against civilian areas, apartment buildings, playgrounds, uh, schools, and so on, the Ukrainian strike was against uh, a structure that is a violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and represents Putin's efforts to illegally annex Crimea. And it is a strategic target, and it's a legitimate target for Ukraine to go after. The Russian strikes were completely illegitimate. That's why General Milley on Wednesday uh, described them as the latest examples of war crimes on the part of, of Russia. So I, I think the Ukrainians continue to have momentum on their side. It will still be a tough battle ahead for sure. The Russians, I think, continue to be going in the opposite direction despite the mobilization that Putin ordered last month, which I don't think is going to solve the root of Russia's problems, which is uh, terrible supply problems, logistical problems, command problems, and just an absolutely lousy reason to invade their neighbor. There is no good reason to do it, and the Russian forces, I think, increasingly know that, and the Ukrainian forces have morale on their side. And stick with you for a minute, Dave. I mean, just the, the other thing that jumps out at me about the Russian response to this is it, it, it seems to show weakness and desperation. I mean, it, it, it's almost like the Ukrainians are saying, that, is that all you got? Because right? this doesn't change the contour of the battlefield at all. It's only, it's only an act of, of trying to terrorize the Ukrainian civilian population, and it's failing. Does this, does this look like a sign of weakness and desperation to you? It does on the one hand, although I don't want to get too carried away with it, because it is not out of character for the way the Russians have conducted this war. Going after apartment buildings and schools and hospitals and playgrounds has been part of the Russian playbook in this whole campaign. It was part of the Russian playbook in Syria. It was part of the mm -hmm. Russian playbook in Chechnya. So this is, uh, yes, on the one hand, it may be desperation. It certainly didn't seem to change much on the battlefield. And, and within Ukraine itself, it seems to have solidified the population even more in its resolve to defeat Russian forces. But um, I, I think it, it is, yes, maybe a sign of desperation on the Russians' part, but also in keeping with the way the Russians have behaved in this whole war. Yeah, no, I was just I was looking at a piece in the Washington Post this morning by by the great Catherine Belton, author of Putin's People, uh, talking about the business community in Russia and how they're watching this and and, and they're and they're despairing because they see this as a sign that really Russia just doesn't have a a a path to victory militarily or politically here, and this is beginning to to settle in. Um, Max, what are your top line reactions to all of this? The strike on the Kerch Bridge, the, the Russian reaction, and then I want to dive into the Western response afterwards. Well, I think, you know, I fully agree with uh, everything David said. I think, you know, the, the strike on the bridge is really operationally impressive um, by mm -hmm. the Ukrainians. Uh, and, you know, I, my understanding is that the it was the explosion came on the, you know, it was coming from Russia, the, 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 if it was the truck bomb. And so what that implies is that Ukraine did a lot of planning, a lot of thinking, had a lot of foresight. This wasn't just like concocted. This isn't just firing a missile. Uh, and they really had to figure out logistically how to get this done and how to strike and what would be the right moment on the bridge. And so, and I think that that's sort of reflective of, so you compare, you compare and contrast that strike with what Russia did and what, you see is the ingenuity on the Ukrainian side 
really thinking about how can we inflict damage on our opponent that will serve an operational end, right? Now Russia's having to ferry uh, trucks across. It's really delaying, uh, hopefully, this, their ability to supply Russian forces in Kherson. And so this is an operate. This is has direct. They do this direct operational purpose, right? You strike this bridge uh, that then depletes Russian forces. What was the Russian uh, strikes about? It sort of feels like a temper tantrum. It feels a little bit like mm-hmm. a performative strike. Uh, you know, the whole war that Putin has been conducting seems more like a psyop, right? Like an intel guy wanting to sort of psych everyone out that, like, look how strong we are. And it feels like he was sort of catering to Russian hardliners on Russian social yeah. media. And which I think in some ways was has to be part of the motivation that get to get the, the hardliners off his back that, okay, now, look, I'm hitting... Uh, targets, but that has real strategic costs to Russia. Because what, what's been the effect of this? Well, very minimal, uh, I think, I mean, real damage to Ukraine in some ways, but it is hard in Ukrainian resolve, but also hard in Western resolve. When Germany is suddenly like, okay, Ukraine, here's advanced air defense. And now everyone's talking about giving Ukraine air defense. And Ukrainian air defense has already been quite impressive in, in taking down a number of the missiles that came. So this had real, I think, a strategic blowback to Russia. The one sort of broader strategic gain, and this is what makes this sort of a war crime, I think, in terms of uh, Russia's perspective, is that Ukraine is having a real economic trouble. And we focus a lot on the need for military assistance, but there's also a need for economic assistance. And the rebuilding of the Ukrainian economy has already sort of started. Uh, Ukrainians are starting to return. Kyiv was turning back to normal. And so now that you've had missiles falling in the center of Kyiv, Right. There is a bit of a question of, does that kind of freeze future investment? Do Westerners feel secure, you know, going to Kiev? Uh, do they kind of delay you know, sending people in? Uh, and so does this put sort of a hold on the reconstruction that was beginning? And I, and I think this is a real strategic problem for Ukraine uh, overall, because Russia has the ability to continuously lob missiles uh, randomly at Ukrainian cities. And so I think the air defense will be really important for kind of a mm-hmm. long-term assurance for building critical infrastructure, rebuilding power plants, things like that, to know they can be protected. But that's a very expensive task. So that's sort of my, um, you know, I think overall just a, a, a Russian, a Putin had a temp, temper tantrum, but there are some effects for the Ukrainian economy that has to be taken into account. Yeah, no, it's one thing you have, like you mentioned, is PSYOP, Max, because, I mean, in a lot of ways, this army has been, like, it seemed to be very successful in these hybrid-type operations and these that they were combining PSYOPs and disinformation and everything. When they were faced with an actual war against an actual determined opponent, they're, 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 they're proving to be incredibly inept. Also, on the costs of this, um, I'm seeing increasing signs. I don't know if you both are seeing this as well. Increasing signs that the Chinese are about fed up. Um, I I just heard that she did not wish Putin a happy 70th birthday last Friday when he turned 70. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but that would be an incredible snub um, if Putin did not receive any birthday greetings from Xi, especially after the um, after what we saw in Uzbekistan. I wanted to turn to the go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Just interject one thing along the lines of what you're saying. On uh, what was it Tuesday, I believe, in the UN General Assembly, there were 143 countries that voted for a resolution in support of Ukraine's territorial integrity and condemning Russia's illegal annexation yeah. of 
those four regions. Um, and Nicaragua was one of five countries, I think, along with Belarus, North Korea, and Syria, if I remember right, and Russia, mm-hmm. of course. Um, but uh, even Cuba abstained, um, and, and India unfortunately abstained. Um, China did as well, but um, there were 143 countries is a much bigger vote than we saw, say, in favor of Zelensky's uh, remote participation in the UN General Assembly. So, yeah, the the tide may be shifting a little bit. We have to be careful not to engage in wishful thinking, but uh, the the Russian campaign has just been so counterproductive to its own interest on so many levels. And as they dig a further and deeper hole, I think it's not going to get better for them. Yeah, I'm, and I'm keeping a close eye on, on China and India and how they're reacting because really that's that's Russia's really only out right now to sell to sell hydrocarbons and if they lose China and India they're 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 in really big trouble. I wanted to turn to the Western response. We had a G, an emergency G7 meeting this week. Um, the West the West again pledged uh, to continue supporting Ukraine. There are increasing, as you noted, David, calls for air defense systems, um, and we're seeing we're we're, we're seeing the possibility that there's, there's going to be some movement on that. Germany has, has just shipped some, some air defense systems, if I'm not mistaken. How do you both see what we just saw in the, over the last week? Do you see this speeding up the delivery of weapon systems to Ukraine? Not just air defense, but Ukraine needs tanks. Ukraine needs fighter jets, and Ukraine, Ukraine needs attackums. Um, and we we seem to have this this drag on this. The, the administration first says no, because that's going to be escalatory, and then they eventually say yes. Um, and, and, and all that time, time is lost. Um, and it kind of seems to illustrate the Winston Churchill maxim that the United States always does the right thing when it's exhausted all other options. Max, what do you, Max, how do you look at this on both sides of the Atlantic? I was kind of pleased to see the German, uh, the, the, the German deliveries of air defense systems. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's really impressive. And I, I, I think we do need to take into account, you know, Germany had, and most European militaries have been underinvested in for the last couple of decades. So when they open the cupboard to look at what they can give Ukraine, there a isn't much there, and a lot of the right. stuff that's there is is sort of broken and not necessarily ready to right. go. And one of the things that's happened on the European side is that, you know, they've all increased defense spending, you know, up or going to up to two percent, but uh, when you then go to those ministries of defense and say, okay. Now we need to give all you know all our tank reserves to Ukraine. Suddenly, the the hundred billion that Germany allocated, for instance, well, how are you going to replace those tanks that you had in reserve? Right. Well, you hadn't budgeted for that. So what we've done is had Congress pass you know an amount of assistance, more than fifty billion dollars, uh, for economic and military assistance that allow that incentivizes the Pentagon to give up equipment. And Europeans haven't really done that. So there's this structural problem where you know the EU has done that to some degree uh, with its European peace facility allocating 2.5 billion. I think there should be a push for Europe to structurally try to allocate a lot of money to try to rebuild uh, Ukraine's military. So uh, so I think that's number one. It's just harder for the Europeans to provide them equipment. When it comes to I'm, I sort of disagree a bit on on attackums. Um, I think the administration has done has been very forward leaning and has given a lot of equipment. I think the attackums, um, my take on this, and I, you know, I'm curious of David's thoughts, is that it's useful for the administration to have something symbolic that is not giving. And I'm not sure the rationale for not giving, I don't necessarily agree with the rationale for uh, not giving attackums. I think there's probably a 
maybe we don't have enough. Maybe we're somewhat concerned about our supply of them in the Indo-Pacific. And there's probably other reasons uh, that that, but it's, and I think the White House probably finds it convenient that they have one system that they're kind of holding the line at. But I think I, I would have no problem with them not giving attackums. But I think it's time for us to open the aperture, think more about uh, tanks, fighter jets. We need to start thinking about how we're going to replenish the Ukrainian Air Force, uh, Ukraine, Ukraine's mobility. So I don't have a problem symbolically having a few systems that maybe are beyond the reach and we call escalatory that sends Putin a message to say, no, 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 we're still concerned about you. When, when in reality, the spigot has been opened and we're providing you know, tons of systems. So I, I think there's a degree of signaling there. And I, I may be reading way too much into it, but you know, having been involved in some of the conversation over Javelin back in 2014, 15, you know, there's a lot of thought that sometimes goes into, uh, mm. a lot of issues go into what, why you're going to provide something, why you're not going to provide something. That, that, that's interesting, Max, because I hadn't really thought about it that way. I saw the debate over the attackums as just a replay of the debate we had over the javelins and then and, and then over the HIMARS. And then it, 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 in, in each case, we, we, we ultimately acquiesced. I, I had not thought of it that way. David, does that ring true to you? Yeah, I might disagree here with Max with, with all due respect. I'm of the view that we shouldn't be holding back on anything. We should be providing the Ukrainians with everything we have that they need, that they can use effectively. Um, and, and that word effectively, I think, is very important because we don't want to just send things that clutter up space and get in the way uh, or are wasted and, and lost to the other side. Um, so if they, if the Ukrainians feel they could use attackums, I would give them to them. I'm not sure what we would wait for, frankly. And um, I was at a conference uh, about 10 days ago in Europe, and a senior Ukrainian told me that the greatest source of tanks right now for Ukraine is Russia. Uh, the <laughs> Russians are losing tanks left, right, and center, and the Ukrainians obviously know how to use these tanks. And so inadvertently, the Russians are – it's the old Lenin saying about the rope to hang themselves – and um, I, I think we have to continue to encourage that kind of defections, if you will. Uh, you know, we, Steve Egan and I wrote a piece of the back early in the war saying we should have a policy of encouraging defections, encouraging the Russians to turn over their equipment to the Ukrainian side, recognizing that Putin just used them as cannon fodder. And as long as that's the case, um, they should be supporting the Ukrainians and recognizing that what Putin is doing is a disaster. I, I think missile defense, this is the other thing I heard from this Ukrainian, um, providing the Ukrainians with, with a missile, stronger missile defense. Max absolutely right that Ukrainians have done a pretty amazing job as it is, I think, in the strikes the past week the ukrainians have shot down close to half of the yeah. of the missiles coming in and about half of the iranian drones by the way when you say iranian drones in this conflict i think that is a reflection of how desperate russia is becoming um that they have to go to the iran you know there was that report about north korea the north koreans denied it. right uh, when you're going into the russian prisons to recruit people to serve on the front lines, that's not exactly a sign of a confident, positive campaign. And so there, I think the Russians are truly desperate. And my view is, um, don't, uh, it, this is up to the Ukrainians, let me be clear, the Ukrainians should be driving this process. But if the Ukrainians want to continue the march, including through the winter, we should not discourage them from doing so. Any breaks could provide a breather to Russia. And um, if they want to continue, we should provide them with everything they need to be successful. It, it's something, the last thing I'll say about this, it, it's, we talked about this many times, Brian, 
it's the difference between helping Ukraine not just to defend itself against Russia. That's not good enough. It's to help Ukraine win, to be right. victorious. And there is a major difference between the two. Right. And on those Russian tanks, I don't know, maybe we should warn the Russians to stop arming the Ukrainians because it might escalate the conflict, right? So, <laughs> but um, but, um, but um, um, I wanted to kind of uh, look with, with each of you on the state of the debate on both sides of the Atlantic. This is something we return to fairly regularly. It's something we we all we all keep an eye on for for good reason. Um, how how much solidarity can we are we expecting to see going forward in Europe? So far, it's been very impressive. I know Max, you have been historically bullish on this. Uh, you have been you have not been one of the people panicking about Europe freaking out in the cold winter and, and giving up on Ukraine. Are do, do you still have your optimism on that? Oh yeah, I, I mean I like look you know, Russia. Um, uh, the, these strikes just harden European public opinion, and and I think Europeans get what is happening here, right? The, this war, the invasion, was the light bulb moment, right? When Russian tanks were coming across uh, into Ukrainian territory, when uh, European capital Kiev was under assault, that really hit home uh, in Germany in a way that I think Europeans didn't expect. And that's what we've seen with the strong response on sanctions. But right now on energy, you know, the EU is convening everyone together. Europe has a very messy process in deciding, you know, policy because it's all out in the open and everyone throws out different proposals. But look, they're they're doing it. You know, they're going to get through this winter. Uh, if it's very cold, it'll, you know, it'll be more costly. It'll be a deeper recession. But they've already taken the steps to get through this winter. Uh, there was a report from Politico the other day about rapid acceleration in many efforts on climate change, uh, expansion of heat pumps in Germany, ex expansion of solar panels. So all these steps are happening. Uh, and I think I, I, I think the, the wariness that if I, the thing that I would be somewhat concerned about is if the war bogs down, right? If it bogs down, then I think there could be pressure from Europe on Ukraine to say, okay, like how how was this, this doesn't appear sustainable. But right now, Europe is not even, you know, I don't hear European voices saying, well, we really need to get the Russian gas pumping again. Um, and that's like, it's very difficult given uh, what Russia likely did to its pipeline. So I, I, I'm quite confident that Europe has just made their decision and the bandaid has been ripped off. It's decoupling from Russia. Uh, it's providing support for Ukraine. I think there is a, the one challenge is that Europe lacks the same institutional capacities that we have, the budgetary ability to just have Congress allocate money. So the coordinating a European response to provide aid to Ukraine economically, militarily, is always going to be somewhat bureaucratically cumbersome. And that's where I would sort of have concerns, that Europe kind of is focused now internally on its own energy crisis, and it's sort of shifted away from how do we support Ukraine economically, militarily. It thinks that's sort of on track, but it's not taking the 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 steps needed that would be uh, out of the ordinary for Europe for the EU to take. Right. But overall, I'm I'm quite confident that Europe will will remain committed. Yeah, whenever I freak out about this, I always should probably talk to you, Max, because you're you're the most optimistic on this one out there that I know. David, how do you view the the situation in Europe? And then I want to shift to the U.S. So this ongoing debate that's been going on in the Biden administration between the China firsters and the Russia hawks. Um, and we're going to dive that into that deeply in the second half when we talk about President Biden's national security strategy. But yeah, how do you see the, 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 the debate on both sides of the Atlantic right now, David? 
I, I agree with Max. I, I think he's got it uh, exactly right. And I think, again, it is also a reflection of Putin's miscalculation. He, he underestimated the EU's ability to stay united in the initial reaction to the invasion, and he's underestimated the EU's ability to stay united throughout the whole campaign so far. I think he also made a huge mistake in essentially cutting off energy when he did. Um, and not, I mean, if you were going to cut off energy, you should wait until the middle of winter when the situation might be more desperate. Now, Max is right. The Europeans were preparing for this anyway, but in doing it so early, he's given them even more time. I guess the concern I hear is uh, for next winter, but you know what? We're, we're always going to hear the next one. Um, as long as the Europeans hold firm on the current winter, I, I think we'll be okay. And I think Max also makes a valid point about how long this will take. Uh, that may add some strain to the unity we've seen so far, but so so far, so good. Maloney in Italy uh, has indicated continued support right. for uh, the sanctions, and, and she has come out in support of Ukraine and opposed to what Putin is doing um, with the invasion. I think the, the one concern remains Hungary. Um, there was a little kerfuffle over some of the sanctions with some individuals that Orban seemed to want to protect, uh, but we they got through that. And so um, I, I think hats off to the Europeans. I, I, I did see, I think it was yesterday, Putin offered to restart the flow of gas through Nord Stream 1. Um, I hope the Germans don't take him up on it. I hope they tell him to go to hell. And uh, uh, But that too strikes me as another sign of desperation on Putin's part. How do you see the debate in the U.S. right now, David? This, this, um, I mean, this ongoing below-the-surface debate that's been that we we know has been going on, um, largely between state and the NSC, but it's not. I don't think it's that simple. Uh, but between those in the administration that are China firsters to the point of being only Chiners, um, and the Russia hawks who are who who say, hey, we got another another adversary here we have to have to deal with. Um, and I know we're going to dive into this deeper, but how do you how do you see that kind of in, in at the moment, well, I, I think there are, there are actually several layers of debate here. I think there are differences between the NSC and state and, and Pentagon as well on the kinds of assistance to provide and the concerns about the level of escalation risk. Um, I think there are debates, as you said, uh, those in the uh, commentariat community who want us to focus more on China, that the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine is taking our eye off the ball. Um, my, my, I mean, I have so many problems with that line of argument, but um, one of which is last I checked, I think it was Russia that invaded a neighboring country. Right. China hasn't yet, which is not to say we ignore China. Um, we simply, the United States, don't have the luxury of picking which one we want to focus on. We have to do both at the same time together with allies. Um, and then there is a debate within the Republican Party itself um, about uh, whether to stand with Ukraine. I think the fringe elements uh, seem to be enamored of Putin, um, but uh, there, there are some who believe, and there's even a little bit of this, I think, on the Democratic side of the yes. aisle. Uh, we need to focus on problems at home, not these problems. And, and Max's point, again, uh, when he was talking about how long this lasts, affecting Europeans' attitude, I think applies in the case of the United States as well. The, the, the key, I think, Brian, is uh, it's the old expression, success has many parents and, and defeat is an orphan. And if the Ukrainians continue to be successful, there will be a lot of people who will want to uh, be supporting Ukraine in that, in that scenario.
Yeah, I know. And I, I, I know you mentioned the, the, the debate in the Republican Party. I am hearing rumblings right now. I, Max, maybe you heard some of this as well, that on the left flank of the Democratic Party, we might see a little bit of dissent um, in the works. I was I was I was hearing this from some some friends in the Ukrainian American community. I don't know if it's, it's true. I don't know. Max, Max, how do you see the debate on the U.S. side? Well, look, you know, if you had told me uh, a year ago that the Democratic Party and the, the left of the Democratic Party would be fully united in, in fueling a proxy war in, against <laughs> Russia by funneling massive amounts of arms to a country, I would be like, well, a little skeptical. And, <laughs> and so I, I, I and, but that's been the case um, with uh, strong support from Bernie Sanders and others. I, I think, yes, there's going to be voices. Um, I do think that if, uh, I am a little nervous that if if there is, you know, I think as expected, if you look at the 538 uh, forecast, if Republicans gain the House and then the beginnings of Republican primary process, that um, the ability for the Biden administration to pass more funding bills mm -hmm. uh, for Ukraine could be d very difficult. Uh, and so I if I were the administration, I would think very carefully perhaps about going to Congress in the lame duck and saying, yeah. give us 50 billion. This will last through the rest of the administration. Because once the, when we talk about political will, it's really all about money. Once you mm -hmm. allocate the money to the Pentagon or to the State Department for security assistance or economic assistance, it's there. And then it's just about executing it. And, and so I, I think it's about getting the money out the door. And then we don't have to worry about, um, you know, domestic political constraints getting involved of, the executive branch conducting uh, foreign policy here to provide Ukraine the support that's needed. And I think, frankly, that's also should happen on the European side, where something big from the EU that could go hand in hand with us. And I, I hope the administration, the Biden administration is pushing that. So, you know, I have a little bit of concern when Donald Trump starts to be back in the news and is running in a primary and then Republicans control the House. And so that's where I could see, um, you know, I could see it turning very quickly. Uh, just in terms of, you know, the influence that Trump has and where he'll land, I think is, um, you know, a, a concern. No, getting that money allocated in the land deck would be would be very helpful. Does Lend-Lease basically help at all here? Is my Because my understanding is the president can just give Ukraine what he wants with that, or unless I'm really misreading the legislation. So I would have to go back and look, but it used to be by law. So Lend-Lease essentially is just is what we're they're calling now presidential drawdown authority. So that's the ability to just take equipment in, in, from the U.S. military stocks and give it to Ukraine. It used to be, and this is when I was at state, you know, covered this, that we would have roughly $100 million per year that was the ceiling. So that, that's like body armor, right? Like we're not talking very expensive kit that you would send to Lebanon if they're dealing with Syria or something like that. But all the caps have been removed, and so we're, I think, more than $10 billion have just come from U.S. stocks. Right. But I am not sure exactly what the legal foundation will be for that going forward, because if you think about it, Congress allocates money for the U.S. military to buy certain equipment. And so if the president just takes that equipment and gives it to another country, right. um, you know, you start getting into certain amount of uh, some legal questions about the reapportioning of congressional funds. Right, right. Before we move into the second half and talk about the national security strategy, which was released this week, and I, I read uh, with a lot of interest, I, there's one thing that's been bugging me over the last week or so, and that is this leak of U.S. intel 
that Ukraine was behind the Dugina assassination in Moscow. Um, I, I I saw that and I found it. First of all, it, it cut against how I saw this. I, I just didn't believe Ukraine had the assets to do something like this in one of the most secure neighborhoods in Moscow, um, which is pretty remarkable if true. But the th other thing that was bugging me about this is who the hell leaked this and why? Because it's not helpful at all. Do, you, do either of you have any thoughts on that or theories? Because I, I just found it. I, what, did, did the administration know this is coming out and they wanted to get ahead of it? Um, was this an intrepid reporter really doing a lot of digging or was this a strategic leak uh, with, with a purpose in mind? And that's, the, that's the, the, the thing I feared the most. Do either of you have any thoughts about that? Max, you're in D.C. You explain this one. <laughs> well, you know, leaks to the New York Times tend to be fairly strategic, right? Yes. Um, uh, and so I'm just speculating here. My guess is that, you know, the rush. So let's presume just for the sake of, that the, it was Ukraine responsible and that the story in the New York Times is accurate, um, which also cuts against the grain, I think, of what I think many expected yeah. or many uh, thought. You know, I, I think the only real rationale here is that the Russians also knew that it was the Ukrainians who were responsible. I think we probably we might have had concerns that Ukraine was thinking about expanding potential assassination campaigns. And we were nervous that this was going to escalate into a tit for tat assassination spiral. And we wanted to signal to the Russians that we're nipping this in the bud and telling Ukraine to stop. So only like, you know, I, I don't I would there must be if it's a strategic leak, uh, a, a degree of thought behind it, although I it did really strike me as off that this is something that you would you know go and, and highlight in the New York Times. Yeah, no, I, I it, it parroted the Russian version of events, which which was strange. It it potentially could undermine support for Ukraine, which I yeah. which I found worrisome. Um, on the other hand, I'm thinking, my God, Ukraine must have some serious assets in Russia if they can pull something off like this, right? Um, yeah, I they, had that reaction too, Brian. I mean, first, I agree with both of you that it was a very unhelpful leak. It it as you said, it kind of parrots the Russian propaganda line. I still don't think it was that woman with her 12-year-old daughter who then no. drove uh, up to the Estonian border and went In a across. Mini Cooper. In a Mini Cooper. <laughs> In a Mini Cooper, no less. Um, uh, but boy, if Didn't we, James was Bond she... drive a Mini Cooper? That was the, the Italian job. <laughs> well, I mean, if it was she, boy, then the Ukrainians are even better than we thought they are. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, 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 this is an embarrassment for Russia one way or the other. Um, it likely was intended for her father, not for her. And um, the Russians uh, obviously have tremendous holes in their system. Uh, if the Ukrainians did this, that they were able to penetrate penetrate that. So um, I, I think at the end of the day, this will blow over the Kerch, uh, the bombing of the Kerch Bridge um, has kind of already deflected attention from it. Right. It stirred up feelings, obviously, in, in Russia again. But, you know, look, it, the, the sentiment in Russia is really disturbing these days. Um, you look at the reaction to the latest Russian bombings in Ukraine, and many Russian commentators are just gleeful that they are killing Ukrainians left, right, right and center, average Ukrainian citizens, not military, not having a military impact, but the fact that they're exacting revenge for what happened to the to a damn bridge. Um, that's, I think, really disturbing uh, and right. reflective of the of the mood, at least in the elite circles these days. Although, unfortunately, not very surprising, quite frankly. Um, and then 
One other thing that happened this week that I really don't think is going to have much effect is Lukashenko is announcing that more Russian troops are moving into to 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 Belarus. I guess it remains to be seen whether whether Belarus is going to actually join the war or not. Um, in a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the new U.S. national security strategy, which was released this week, and what it means for policy toward Russia going forward. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power of the Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global. Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Dallas, Texas is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Europe and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Managing Director for Global policy at the George W. Bush Institute in, Washington, in Dallas. Um, also joining us from downtown Washington is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power of the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, out and tune in. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the po- po- podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин нас никто не слушал. Послушайте Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности. Гоном вас. С новым веком. So the Biden administration's new national security strategy says that the overwhelming challenge for the United States in the coming years will be outcompeting China and restraining Russia. Russia and the PRC pose different challenges, according to the strategy. Russia poses an immediate threat to the free and open international system, recklessly flouting the basic laws of the international order today as its brutal war of aggression against Ukraine has shown. Although it says, quote, the United States will not allow Russia or any power to achieve its objectives through using or threatening to use nuclear weapons and suggests a return to the Cold War era policy of containment, the strategy clearly views China as the greater long-term threat. David, what are your reactions to this long-awaited national security strategy? This thing was delayed um, due to the impending Ukraine, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now it's out. Uh, what, what's your What's your take? To be honest, Brian, I've been of the view that national security strategies are overrated. Um, you know, it's the old <laughs> events, my dear boy, events that always get in the way of national security strategies. There's so much effort and time that are put into these, and then things just go in a different direction quite often. That said, um, yes, China is a long-term threat and challenge. There's no question about it. Russia is the one that has invaded a neighbor and is guilty of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. 
And Russia is the one that demands our attention now, not to the point where we take our eye off of China. Again, we don't have the luxury of doing that. We're, we're the leading power in the world. We're the leading democracy, and we have responsibilities and obligations and interests in making sure that we are able to address both challenges. So I, I think at the end of the day, um, the administration needs to just focus on uh, helping Ukraine to victory, defeating Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. while also supporting Taiwan as much as possible. Taiwan is this island of democracy under tremendous pressure from a uh, a, a brutal authoritarian regime in, uh, based in Beijing. So um, I, I hope the administration keeps its eye on both balls, if you will. I mean, the thing I was looking for is, and a lot as a lot of people were waiting for this strategy to come out before the invasion, right? Was that the, the there was a fear that the stress was going to be all on China, right? Um, there, the, the, remember the the pre-invasion debate, this these, this idea that maybe we could peel Russia away and use them as an ally against China, which is, in my opinion, an absurd argument that no Russia expert would ever ever make. Um, but you did this this desire to park Russia, and I was waiting for the national security strategy with a lot of trepidation. Now the war has kind of changed things. Events, my dear boy, events is is, is exactly exactly what we're we're talking about there. But Max, how do you see this reflecting on this debate? How how do you do, do you get get any signals about where the state of this debate is right now? Uh, no, I agree with David's sentiments and. Uh, you know, the, the European Union came out with its strategic compass, I think, the week of the invasion. So, you know, they didn't wait. They just came out with theirs and they're like, well, it is what it is. But uh, look, I, I think I think one of the most significant things about it is that I think it really reflects the president's worldview and uh, that we're in a competition between democracy and autocracy. Uh, and that 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 is sort of the, the foundational challenge and therefore really emphasizes cooperating with democracies. And, you know, that's been a thing in American foreign policy and we have NATO. But on the other hand, you know, our broader approach previously had been competing with everybody, engagement with China, global free trade agreements. Uh, And so I think this this does reflect a shift in emphasis and strategy on really uh, working and networking our democratic allies and partners more. Uh, it mentions, you know, if countries want to have a good relationship with us and our autocrats, like fine. Uh, but really trying to build up the the, the density of relations and, and engagements with our democratic partners. And I think that's an important um, point. And I guess just one broader point is I think one of the things that I think, you know, we are very bad. We well, The strength of democracies is oftentimes we don't dwell on our successes. We just constantly turn to the next thing, you know, as a think tanker, I don't get credit. I'm not going to write an op-ed saying, here's all the great things that Biden administration has done this year. Like, as much as the Biden administration would want me to do that. Instead, it's like, no, here's this, like, thing that they should really be thinking about. But what we're seeing is that in autocratic systems, like, they don't do that. And that the sort of hollowness of, of Russian, of the Russian system, of Putin's system, um, I think this has been a, a turning point year for the West. Um, where everyone sort of thought the West was weak and in decline. And what we're seeing is, no, you know, we're providing weapons that, to Ukraine, and Ukraine is fighting for democracy and, and taking, cutting down the size what was considered a global military power. Uh, so I, I think that the democratic, you know, the, the authoritarian versus democracy aspects of this national security strategy, I think it's what, can be, what is going to be remembered historically, and I think it's quite important uh, going forward into this decade. 
No, Max raises an interesting point here, David, the, the, the emphasis and the struggle between uh, authoritarian and democratic systems. Back in your time in government in the Bush administration, this is something you worked on at state. Um, to my knowledge, this is the first time I've seen something like this emphasized so prominently in a national security strategy. Am I correct? Well, I mean, in the administration in which I worked, uh, the, the freedom agenda was prominent. The freedom agenda was prominent. Security but... strategy, okay. Strategy. Um, so it's not the first time, but I think Max is right to point out that I think since then, this has been the, the loudest uh, affirmation on these issues. The administration, however, is facing a big issue, a test on that right now, and that's Saudi Arabia. Um, what to do about Saudi Arabia in light of OPEC's decision, OPEC with Russia, to cut back on the production of oil. There's an uh, autocratic regime that now claims it wants to have good relations with us while essentially siding with Russia in, in the war. Um, and, and it isn't just autocracies. We talked about India before in its position on the war. Um, Brazil, the president of Brazil, who's up for re-election on October or second round, October 30th, was in Moscow just days before the invasion. The president of Argentina was in Moscow that month of the invasion. So we need to get our fellow democracies in line, um, not just make sure our friends who are authoritarian regimes are lined up too, but get, get the democracies lined up because the more we can do that, the more pressure Putin will feel and the more isolation Russia will experience. Right. Now, this is a this kind of sets the stage for the national defense strategy, if I understand the bureaucratic process correctly. Right. Can we ex what what could do? What are we what should we be looking for as the national defense strategy comes uh, comes out after this? Max, any? Well, yeah, well, my understanding is the national defense strategy has not changed all that much and has basically been been waiting for this to come out. Uh, and I think it's going to be a heavy focus on China. And I think that's right. where the Pentagon really sees China as the pacing threat. And while I, I sort of agree with David that the United States needs to be focused both on Europe and Asia, and we can't um, you know, just shift our focus to, to Asia because, or to China because Russia's military has been ground down. I think bureaucratically, I, I, I think there's going to be a bit of a struggle to maintain the sort of focus in uh, resources that have gone into the European theater uh, this year. I mean, it's just not, we're at a high watermark and it's going right. to go down. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, Europeans need to understand that we are a, a little bit stretched militarily ourselves in thinking about these challenges. And so I think there's got to be a big emphasis on really getting, you know, now that Europe is spending on defense, it needs to do so in a more integrated and rational and coordinated way, such that they actually provide the capabilities that reduce their reliance and dependence. It doesn't have to weaken the alliance. In fact, I think it would strengthen the alliance. Uh, but but I think that that's going to be a reality that we're going to, mm -hmm. I think, confront uh, as folks focus on Europe and Russia over the next few years. All right. Okay. Well, I am mindful of the clock because I am mindful of my guests' time. Um, do either of you have any last thoughts before we wrap it up for the week? You know, I'll, I'll just say very quickly, building on what Max said, Brian, um, I think one thing the national defense strategy, or at least the Pentagon, really needs to focus on is replenishing our stocks. Mm. Um, imagine if China also were launching an invasion against Taiwan. Um, our allies are also experiencing a real decline in, in the availability of their weapons uh, systems. Um, so we have to make sure that we have uh, supplies. Russia is also experiencing supply shortages. That's why it's going to the Iranians and others for some weapons. 
That's why it's stripping parts from civilian airliners in order to use in military jets. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be at the same level with Russia. We want to make sure that we right. always will have the last weapon system, uh, not the other side. So I think right. uh, I, I know this raises concerns in the Democratic Party. It will be an interesting debate, I think. But funding, proper funding for the military so that we are prepared for any contingency will be really critical. Yeah, no, that, that's a point well taken. Max, any last words before we wrap it up? Yeah, no, I, I agree with David there, and I think it also really applies on the, the European side. You know, we've there is really no European defense industrial base to speak of, and I think that one sort of thought I've recently had on this is that, you know, the United States is actually has a really restrictive policy on how we do arms sales abroad uh, everywhere except Europe, right? Everywhere else, you know, Middle East, we have to we calculate how this will impact Israel's security, human rights issues, uh, technology transfer, but in Europe, there's no real constraint, right? It's sell, 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 because democracy, allies, trust them in technology. And in some ways that's good, it builds relationships, um, it, it build, increases interoperability, we have great military technology. On the other hand, it has eroded the European defense industrial base when country, European countries buy American and don't buy from fellow Europeans. And I think that's something we're gonna have to think about and how do we help, how do we, not necessarily conjoin our industrial bases, but how does the European defense industrial base revive itself? Because that is, I think, one mm. of the things that we're, the Europeans are looking at and like, well, they don't really have the production capacity to deliver the things for Ukraine, not only deliver things to Ukraine, but to replace equipment that they would give to Ukraine. And so right. there's, there's huge, I think, problems there because we've been focused for 20 years on expeditionary warfare, uh, not on, on the conventional threat. So I right. think that's gonna be a real, uh, a real defense industrial challenge going forward and something that uh, we're going to have to all, I think, creative, think creatively about. One of the one of the long term effects of this war on both sides of the Atlantic, I guess, is to focus our attention on where it should be focused. And on that note, we will wrap it up for this week. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, has been the one and only David Kramer, who served as assistant secretary. Of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and later in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Also joining us from downtown Washington has been former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's Policy Planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State. John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Thanks to you both for an enlightening discussion. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very Thanks much. Same uh, here. Both of you and to Lance as well. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all important post production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Ripple Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Cloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. <laughs>